Hey, if you are uh, just joining us or have been kind of in and out this semester, we are uh, working our way through the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is this lesser known um, book of narrative in the Old Testament. It's the last historical thing to take place to God's people before the coming of the Messiah. 450 years after Nehemiah, Jesus will come. And here's the context for this book, and the context is helpful for us to understand it, even if you're just joining us today. Um, a little bit of context. So God's people have been taken captive in, by the Babylonian Empire. Babylonian Empire then gets taken over by the Persian Empire, and King Artaxerxes is the king of the Persian Empire. Nehemiah is the cupbearer in the kingdom of Persia to the king of Persia. He is the third most powerful man in the entire empire. He's the chief of staff for the king of Persia. He gets word as a Jew, he's a, he's a God-fearing Jew, he gets word that there have been some refugees set loose to go back to Jerusalem and begin to rebuild God's holy city, the city of Zion, the city of God, Jerusalem, to restore God's promises to the world and restore the promises that God made to his people. The Jerusalem front is buzzing with hope. Well, then on the Jerusalem rebuilding front, word gets back to Nehemiah that Jerusalem has actually been burned to the ground. The walls in the city have been redestroyed. The temple still stands, but the walls of the city are in ruins. Nehemiah is sitting in his posh life in Jerusalem, or in, in, the, in the kingdom of Persia, in the palace, and he gets in his bones, he gets in his belly this desire that says, I am to be the one to leave my place in the palace to come back and rebuild Jerusalem. So he gets this troop of people to come back and begin to rebuild Jerusalem. It's a big deal the rebuilding of the city of God. Maybe God hasn't given up on us. Maybe God hasn't forgotten about us. Maybe God will restore the fortunes of Zion and to his people. So it's a big project. It's a, it's a deeply spiritual project. So he gets home. He's rebuilding. All is going well. And then the trouble begins, which the trouble that we study in Nehemiah, the study that we see Nehemiah facing week in and week out is the trouble that you should expect that if you're gonna follow God on the vision that he has for your life, which he has one for you, if you're gonna follow God where he's called you, which he has called you somewhere to restore what's been broken like Nehemiah, you should expect trouble. You should expect resistance. You should expect doubt. You should expect sin. You should expect pain. You should expect loneliness. All the things that Nehemiah is going through is, is, is a primer for us. And so last week we saw one of the things that's not going the way that it should on the Nehemiah home, build, home rebuilding project of Jerusalem is that there was this wealthy class of nobles and elites that had let the people and the poor and the needy underneath them go into massive debt to pay their bills. And those wealthy in Jerusalem were oppressing the poor and the needy and this wealth gap was growing. And they were enslaving the needy among them. They were taking their sons and their daughters and the poor cry out to Nehemiah and they say, hey, Nehemiah, we're giving our lives to you to rebuild this city. We need our children back. We can't pay our bills and the, and the taxation and the interest rates of this loan and this debt is too much for us. So Nehemiah rebukes the elders, the nobles, the officials, the wealthy that are oppressing the poor. He rebukes them in chapter five. We're now gonna close out chapter five and we're gonna see the next step that Nehemiah takes in response to this debt oppression that Nehemiah uh, just, uh, just set the people free from. So, a lot of context, but I hope it helps. Um, Nehemiah chapter five, starting in verse 14. This will be on the screen for you if you don't have your Bibles or your phones. It says, moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took, them, took from them their daily ration, 40 shekels of silver. 
Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there was at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds and every 10 days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, oh my God, all that I've done for this people. It's the word of the Lord. So coming off last week's uh, heavy uh, debt enslavement that was going on. Now to read what Nehemiah does next is, uh, is quite startling. It's quite something that we saw in last week's passage, the oppression of this debt from the nobles and the wealthy and the, and the, and the elite in society. And Nehemiah rebukes them. He calls for what was known in the Jewish context, a jubilee, a canceling of debts. Uh, he calls for the release of all the captives and release of all the slaves that were debt enslaved in Jerusalem. He stops the oppressive system in Jerusalem. That's, that's great. Good leaders should stop the oppression that is happening underneath their watch. And it's one thing for a leader to stop that, to bring justice to the injustice of what was oppressing the poor and the needy. It's one thing for him to call out those in power. It's one thing for him to rebuke the wealthy and stop this. It's another thing that we just saw in these six verses for Nehemiah to go one step further. It's another thing for Nehemiah to say, not only do I wanna stop the oppression that was happening to you, I actually wanna move towards you and serve you and give you something. Nehemiah enters their estate and at great cost to himself, he serves the poor and the needy and those that were laboring in Jerusalem. What we just read was that for 12 years, 12 years, Nehemiah was the appointed governor of that region. And he had the authority of the king. He had the king's paper stamp that says, hey, when you return to Jerusalem, you show them these papers, you are now the designated ruler and governor of that entire area. And as the governor of that region, Nehemiah would have had every right, he would have had every prerogative, he would have had every privilege as the ruler of that region to tax the people. And not only did he have the right to tax the people to get the taxes he needed from that region to send back to the king for the king's taxes, what everybody did when they had positions of taxing power over people was that they oppressed them further. Because he said, well, yeah, we need to pay the king some money. We need, we need to pay the king X for his taxes, but I'm gonna go ahead and lop on some extra taxes for you to pay to me so that I can pad my pockets. So if you had taxing power, you had every um, possible reason to say, I'm just gonna use this position for my own gain. I'm gonna use this position for my own good. Nehemiah had that right. Not only did Nehemiah have that right, Nehemiah had that precedent. The governors before Nehemiah did this to the people, taxed the people with oppressive amounts of taxing. We're told in there what the previous governors decided to tax the people with. We're told in there that the previous governors taxed the people of a daily ration of 40 shekels of silver. That's what's expected of you in the offering plate this morning is 40 shekels of silver. I'm kidding. We don't pass a plate. The pastor, don't make a giving joke, okay? But we, we, we're, uh, sorry, scratch that from the record. But the daily taxation, the daily ration of 40 shekels of silver means nothing to you. But if I did the equivalent, I would tell you that 40 shekels of silver was about 75 days wage labor 
which means that every day the previous governors would make 75 people give up their daily ration, their daily labor wage that they had made that day working and put it in the pot to give to the governor. So as the hundreds of people were working, 75 of them every day would have to pull together and say, I guess it's my turn to add to the 40 shekels of silver and I'll pay my day's wage today for the governor to pad his pockets 40 shekels a day extra. Every day. Nehemiah had this chance. Every day, Nehemiah could have taxed the people this way. It was the precedent that had been set. He had this right. But Nehemiah shows up and says, I'm not gonna do that to you anymore. Look at what he says in verse 14 and 15. Can you throw this up there, Darren? Uh, Verse 14 and 15, it says, for 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them their daily ration, 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. There were rights, there were precedents, and Nehemiah did not take what he could have from the people. Nehemiah did not use his prerogative. Nehemiah did not use his position. Nehemiah forfeited. He gave up his rights in order to not burden or oppress the people further. No one does this. Nobody does this. Usually a well-to-do person will use their political power to increase their wealth, but Nehemiah not once for 12 years never demanded the food and tax allotted to him as the governor. What political leader do you know that has gone into office and intentionally gotten poorer from it? One, One Google search, quick Google search, will show you the net worth of people that have gone into the president's office and what their net worth was pre and post them being in that position. Nobody uses that office to intentionally get poor. They like to use that office post being in office to increase their brand and sign book deals and speaking engagements to take like 500X what they were when they got into office. Nobody does this take the rights and the privileges of a position that you could absolutely use, you would have every right to do, to use that position to increase your wealth. Nobody uses that position and intentionally gets poorer from it. How hard is this kind of thing for us to deny what may be rightfully yours? Now, I'm not talking about are you running for political office. If you are, I don't care, okay? But if, if, I'm talking about like in your relationships, in your interactions with people, in your, in your economy of where you do life, in your family systems, do you intentionally not take what is rightfully yours in order, in order to serve the people in front of you? Like when you're in an argument and you get spoken to a certain way or people bring accusations against you or people say something about you that you don't think is true, how quickly does your thermometer of the rights that you now have, the rights of this position of how you're being treated, I now have the rights to treat you however I want because of how I've been treated. How often do we take the rights that we have and we say, I'm gonna choose to do with my rights what I want to do with my rights instead of I'm gonna choose to take my rights and give them up in order to serve you? What would it look like to not take what you could from someone, what you have every right to take from them so that you don't burden the people in front of you, to lose or give up something that you have the right to in order to serve people in front of you? If you do this, it will hurt that saying no to your rights, laying down your rights for the sake of serving someone in front of you will be painful. Who's taking the hit for this? Who's not getting richer, but who's actually getting poorer for this kind of action from Nehemiah? It hurts. 
to not take what you could from someone that you had every right to so that you don't burden them in front of you. Giving up our rights, giving up what we feel like we're entitled to may be the most offensive and easily rejected idea of the modern moment. To give up something that is rightfully yours to do for the sake of someone else, no thanks. Why is this so painful for us? Why is this so difficult for us to give up what is rightfully ours in order to serve someone else? And I'm, I'm, not, I'm not speaking to one side of the political spectrum at all. This is, this is an apolitical, an apolitical statement. I'm talking about you as a human being in the world. How often do you give up what is rightfully yours in order to serve someone else in front of you? Why is this so difficult for us? Many philosophers, modern philosophers, have written about the modern mind and the modern sense of self. Charles Taylor is kind of the godfather of this, the Canadian philosopher. But this, this is what makes giving up our rights so difficult is that the modern sense of self, meaning your existential self, meaning who you like to think that you are and who you want other people to think that you are and who you have declared to the world to be, the modern sense of self is rooted in the self. That maybe some modern philosophers and historians would say for the first time in human history, we are the first culture, we are the first society, we're the first civilization to demand and declare our sense of self without going outside of ourself. That I get to tell you who I am and I get to decide what is good for me and I get to decide what is right for me and I have rights that entitle me to that position. And so, connect these dots, this is the modern sense of self that is rooted in the self. To give up one's rights feels like or would seem like then to be the most inauthentic and stupid thing to do. Because to give up my rights means I'm giving up who I get to say that I am. To give up my rights means I don't get to tell you who I am anymore. I don't get to declare who I am. I'm giving up my rights. I can't give up the right to choose me because to do so would be to lose me. It would be to commit treason against the very kingdom to which I have pledged my life, the kingdom of my autonomy, and a life that is pain-free. I hate pain. And giving up my rights is painful. And so to be invited into this idea like Nehemiah is displaying to give up your rights for the sake of other people, the modern mind almost like can't process, like does not compute. You want me to give up my sense of self, which is my ability to choose for me, my rights, my ability to declare to you what is best for me, give that up? That would be to not just lose my rights, I might lose me if I do that. I would be committing treason against the kingdom that I've given my life to, which is the kingdom of self so we cling to our rights like our very sense of identity dependent on it. And let me apply this, and this is dangerous for the preacher to commit their sins because I don't know you and I don't trust you, right? This might not actually, like this, this might make you leave, but let me, let me like apply this to me. Like how many of you like fathers or husbands, how many of you at the end of a long work week, you come in on a Friday night or a Saturday morning and you think, I'm tired. I've been working all week, I'm exhausted. I deserve to think about me on Friday night. I deserve to do what I wanna do on Saturday morning. I work for Jesus. I've been giving my life away to Jesus all week and serving other people. Don't I get a little bit of window to think about me for a little bit? College game day better be on because that's what's restful for me. I need it and I've got the right to it because I've been caring for everybody else all week. Don't you infringe on my rights and tell me that I can't do this today. 
So it goes from everything like how you spend your Friday evenings. What do you think you have the right to? And then you can switch to the other end of the spectrum. What about when it comes to your view of your sex life, your view of your own sexuality? What does that mean? Do you get to just determine what it, you have the right to do that? You, these are your rights and to give that up would be to commit betrayal against your sense of self. And so anything on the spectrum to give up my rights, are you kidding me? I'm not giving up my rights because to give up my rights means that I might lose me. What if I can't sleep in on Saturdays? I might not know who I am anymore. I might not know what I, I, might not know what I, what I really wanna do and what's best for me. I might not know what self-care is anymore. And here's what tends to happen when we only think about self and self-care and go on the journey of being more self-aware. We tend to only care about ourselves and we tend to only be aware of ourselves. Now, some of those things are really great and some of us need to spend a lot of time doing some self-care and practicing self-awareness. I'm talking about when that's all that you do. And so is it possible that this notion of giving up your rights for the sake of other people actually infringes on who you believe yourself to be? Like we're not just talking about do you lose a few hours of your weekend. I'm talking about like, do you, is this terrifying because you might think you might lose your whole sense of identity if you started to think this way. So can we look at Nehemiah through our modern lens and for one moment see this incredible thing that Nehemiah is doing? This is insane. He's giving up his rights for the sake of the people in front of him. He's giving up the chance to pad his own pockets. He's giving up his rights for the sake of the people. And if Nehemiah did it, if Nehemiah came and said, hey, 40 shekels of, sh 40 shekels of silver, that's too much, let's just cut it down to 20, like no one would have blamed him. They would have said, yeah, you're the governor, this is what governors do, you have the right to do that, that's what your position entitles you to. There's precedent for it, thanks for not being so harsh. And then you talk about Nehemiah going, do you know the posh life I gave up in Persia? Do you know the journey I've been on? Do you know the stress of this job? Do you know that I'm obeying the Lord here? And so if anyone deserves a break, if anyone deserves to pad their pockets, it's me. But he doesn't do it. For 12 years, Nehemiah doesn't do this. He gives up his rights. If anything is ever gonna change for the better in your world, anything is ever going to change for the better, it requires this kind of action. No, nothing changes in the world for good without this kind of action. And again, I'm not talking about like get out your arrows and shoot it at the political spectrum. I'm not talking about getting out your arrows and shooting it at the politicians in office who never use their position or your boss who never uses his position to serve the people. I'm talking about if you want things to happen for redemptive good to take place, it will only take place if people choose to give up their rights for the sake of those in front of them. I'm talking about your family. I'm talking about your spouse. I'm talking about your kids. I'm talking about your roommate. I'm talking about your coworkers. The only time redemptive good ever takes place is when people choose to give up their rights for the sake of those in front of them. Give up your rights to lay down the things that you feel entitled to, to lay down the things that you feel like you deserve so I don't know where this needs to hit you. I know where it can hit me. I don't know where you fight for your rights. I don't know where you demand to have what you're entitled to. But Nehemiah knows I'm rebuilding a city here. I want health not just for me. I want health for the whole city. I want health for all of God's people. We're rebuilding a culture and rebuilding a kingdom and he's putting this core value at the bottom. God's people will not be marked by a people who don't use their position and don't give it up for the sake of other people. That's what we're gonna be about. 
But not only did Nehemiah not take what he could have from the people, he also gave to the people when he didn't have to. Look again at verse 17 and 18. He says this, this is, he hasn't taxed them. Remember, he hasn't taken what is rightfully his and then, and then look at what he does. Verse 17, moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds. And every 10 days, all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. So Nehemiah didn't just deny his rights to tax the people and take from the people to pad his own pockets. He also threw a nightly feast for them. And who paid for it? Verse 18, now this was prepared at my expense. So as governor, he's got a couple interests. One of the interests he has is, hey, your workforce, your labor force, you wanna make sure they're fed. You've got a city rebuild to do. You wanna make sure they're taken care of. He's also got another interest. As the representative of the Persian empire in this region, as the buzz starts swirling in Judah and in Israel and in the, the, the area of the promised land and in the, the ancient Near East section where he was, people would have started hearing things. Other nations, other rulers, other dignitaries, other people would have started hearing, wait, Jerusalem's being rebuilt. I wanna go see what's going on over there. I want, maybe Jews that had been scattered would have come back home. Wait, is this really happening? Are we really rebuilding? And so it, that's what they just said. Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from other nations that were around us, people are hearing the buzz. And as the representative of the Persian empire, guess what he would have been expected to do anytime this foreign troop showed up to see what was happening? It's like a soft launch of a new restaurant. They would have to put their best foot forward. They would have to wine and dine the dignitaries from the other countries. And so he's got these laborers that are working day in and day out in their families. And then he's got the dignitaries that hear the buzz about Jerusalem and they're coming to, the, to, to Jerusalem to see what's happening. And what does he do with all of those people? Some people think it was upwards of 500 people a night it could have been. What is he doing for them? Setting a feast for them. But how did he pay for it? I did not take the food allotted to the governor. What that means is, is that he could have gone to every family around Jerusalem and said, hey, we got these out of town guests that are coming in. I need three of your sheep and I need two of your oxen and I need you to provide the wine tonight. And I'm just gonna take the food from you and I'm gonna get the glory for it because I'm gonna set the feast for all these people every night. Nehemiah is taking all of the cost from his own pocket. And he's not serving them ramen and crackers, okay? I'm not talking about like 210 Jack ramen on the east side, okay? Like fancy ramen. I'm, what is the cheap ramen called? I asked the first service, what's it called? Oh, don't act like you haven't eaten cheap ramen, okay? I ate it this week, okay? I ate it on Saturday, okay? What is it? Cup of noodles. Cup of noodles. Thank you, Rebecca. Thank you. That's very humble of you. How often do you eat it? Yeah. Twice this week. Yeah, too much, too much sodium. There we go. You wouldn't. I'm gonna stop. Okay, uh, look at what he's serving them. Look at, what he, look at what he is putting on the table for them. Now it was prepared at my expense for each day was an ox and six choice sheep, say that five times fast, and birds. And every 10 days, all kinds of wine in abundance. He says, I'm gonna set you out some steak and gyro meat every night. 
And on the 10th night, I'm gonna bring you more wine than you can handle. We're gonna have it in abundance. You won't be able to drink all the wine that I'm bringing out for you. I'm gonna throw you a feast. I'm gonna pay for it all myself. I'm not gonna use the taxes or the food I could pull from you to pay for this feast each night. I'm gonna take the hit and I'm gonna pay the bill. In fact, the poor and the needy that five verses before this were being oppressed and taken from, he actually flips the script and he says, come and take from me. You come and take from me, take from my table tonight. And it will be lavished upon you to come and feast at my table. If you can kind of use your redeemed imagination to get into this story, like get into the marrow of this story, like go, imagine yourself like a blue collar, ancient Israelite, like working on the walls of Jerusalem and then you know the nightly feast is happening at Nehemiah's house and you're walking over to the, to the place where the governor lives and you're walking into his house to, seat, to sit at the table for 150 to 500 folks a night to eat the steak and to drink the wine. Did you catch, as you heard this section read in your imagination, use this, did you catch how many qualifications Nehemiah had at the door for entry? Zero. Nehemiah doesn't ask for a fee or a donation. He doesn't require proof of commitment or validation of merit. He doesn't say, hey, have you been spreading rumors about me? How many days did you actually work on the wall this week? How many sick days did you take? And are you still committed to the vision? And how many times did you go to synagogue this month? And did you do your sacrifices at the temple and have you talked to the priest? I need to make sure you are serious about all this Judaism stuff and this rebuilding stuff if you're gonna come and feast at this table. Zero qualifications given for feasting at Nehemiah's table, zero. He simply says, come to my table and feast and I'll pay for it. Nehemiah not only didn't take what he could have taken from the people, he also gave when he didn't have to to the people, all at great cost to himself. And so wrapping all that up as he lands this section, remember Nehemiah is almost like a journal for Nehemiah. He writes in the personal pronoun I most of the book. What does he say at the very end of this, of this section is the reason why he did all of this? What's the, what's the bottom of the motivation tower for Nehemiah? Why is he doing this? Verse 19, remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. Remember me, oh God, remember me. Remember me with goodness and affection and favor, remember me. Which means Nehemiah wasn't doing this for recognition. He wasn't doing it to win political office. He didn't need their vote. He wasn't coming to them and saying, hey, I'm gonna do this to be like one of the bros for a couple months, but then I'm gonna flip it on you and then, and then tax you heavily and make you pay for the feast. For 12 years, he didn't do it for them or their recognition. I'm not doing it to be liked by you. I'm not doing it to pomp up my own self-righteous attitude towards you. I'm doing it. And I'm pleading with all of my heart for the Lord to see me. I'm pleading with all of my heart. I'm groaning for the Lord to remember me. Being remembered by the Lord, being remembered by the Lord with favor and goodness. So what he says is his greatest longing. I did all this for 12 years. I took a hit every day for 12 years. I didn't do it so that the people would like me. I did it, Lord, would you remember me? Remember me with goodness, remember me with favor, remember me. Being remembered by the Lord was Nehemiah's greatest longing.
Do you think it's yours? Do you know that you come into the world looking for a face that's looking for you? And I wish I could tell you that after those newborn days and growing into toddler, I wish I could tell you that your groaning, your longing of looking for a face that's looking for you went away. But the affliction of that desire actually doesn't diminish, it increases. That as you get older, you're always looking for a face that's looking for you. Or in the words of Nehemiah, you're looking for a face that remembers you with favor. In fact, if we had time, I would get some of the very skilled therapists and counselors in this room and we could sit down with each of you and we could walk through your story and we could look at every decision you've made in your little breath of a life up until this point and we could help you see that you've been trying to secure a face that would remember and find you. Everything you've ever done. You're here this morning because you're hoping that someone remembers you. You're here this morning because you're longing for a face that's looking for you. It's why you have the job that you have. It's why you brush your teeth, hopefully. It's why you're so tired, trying to find a face that will remember me with favor, trying to find a face that will look back at me and remember me with goodness. It's why you look at porn. It's why you hate the way you look. It's why you hold on to your rights. Because if I let go of these rights, what if, what if someone takes advantage of me? If I let go of these rights, what if, what if someone doesn't remember me? If I let go of these rights, what if they, everybody leaves me? What if I give them up and nobody, nobody knows who I am? What if I give them up and I don't even know who I am anymore? Because I found all of my sense of self by holding on to my rights. So what if, what if I let go of them? I might not know. I might have to go on the journey of learning who I am again. That if you can take Nehemiah's groan to be remembered by the Lord with goodness and favor, if you can take his longing and marry it with your similar mirror groan and say, we're looking for a face that's looking for us. We're looking for a face that remembers us with goodness and favor. That it wouldn't be until you would meet Jesus. 450 years later, the better, the perfect Nehemiah would come. That what Nehemiah was just a shadow of, Jesus was the ultimate thing. That Jesus, who had every right as the king of the universe, Jesus, who in his position to hold on to his rights, Philippians 2 would say, he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he gave them up. Why? To come and leverage the resources of his kingdom to find you. Jesus gave up his rights to serve you, not because you were right or deserved it. Jesus gave up his rights because you were so wrong. Jesus gave up his rights as the king of the universe in order to serve those of us that are oppressed by sin. And Jesus not only, like Nehemiah, didn't take what he could have, he didn't demand that you give him something, he didn't scrape off the top to pad his own pockets with your merit. He also gave when he didn't have to. The second Corinthians chapter eight says that Jesus, though he was rich, though he was equal with God, though he had every resource in the cosmos, Though he was rich, for your sake became poor, 
that through his poverty, you might become rich. And that's not a prosperity gospel that he's gonna pad your bank accounts. It's saying, do you know the thing that you need most in your poverty? Do you know the thing that you're groaning for the most in your neediness is to know that there's a face that's looking for you, to know that you haven't been forgotten, to know that you will be remembered, that through Jesus' poverty, he's made you richer than you could ever believe. Jesus lost everything he had in order to lavish you with what you long for. Because what Jesus accomplished through what he gave up means that what Nehemiah was hoping for, we now know for sure. You now have the Lord's favor permanently. God has remembered you forever. We sing it in the old hymn, it is well with my soul. Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. And like Nehemiah, Jesus doesn't just not take from us. He sets us a feast. A feast at the table, not just of his provision, but of his affection. And Jesus, not just the governor of the region, but the king of the cosmos, comes to you, and just like Nehemiah's feast, he comes to you and he says, without qualification, come and feast at my table, and I'll pay for everything. Come and feast at my table of my provision and my affection. Come and feast at my table of my love for you. Come and feast at my table of all that I've given up to come and find you and be remembered by me here. I paid for this table with my own blood. I paid for this table with my own body. I paid for this table with my own resources. Come and feast at the table that you might eat here and be satisfied here. Psalm 23 is an infamous psalm. Uh, David wrote it, sang it. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It's very Pinteresty. But if you if you if you go on in that psalm, it, it begins to develop not just the language of the good shepherd, it be, begins to develop the language of a feast. And he says this really mysterious thing about halfway through the psalm. David says, as he's singing about his good shepherd and uh, you know, I walk through the valley of the shadow of death and you're with me and, and, and you lead me beside still waters and, and, and the green pastures and all this shepherding image then just shifts. Like we're transported from the being shepherded by God and now he starts talking about a feast. A feast that the table is prepared by the shepherd. And he says, you prepare a feast before me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And you can read that at first glance and you go, who wants to eat with their enemies? <laughs> if we're throwing a party, Jesus, I would love for my friends to be there, not the people that I hate. What's he saying? You prepare this feast before me. You gave up your rights to prepare a feast before me in the presence of my enemies. Here's what he's saying. You prepare a feast for me, Jesus, in the face of the very people and of the very places that I thought would destroy me. You prepare a place for me in the very parts of my story that I thought disqualified me from this table. You prepare a feast for me in the very places where I would have been destroyed had you not set a feast for me there. And he invites us to the table and he sets a feast for, for us there in the presence of our enemies. He's not trying to help you forget the places that you think should destroy you. He's not trying to help you forget the places that you think have marred you and disqualified you. He's setting a feast for you there in that place, right in the face of your enemies, and he says, eat. Eat the feast that I've prepared for you so that you know these things cannot destroy you. 
eat the feast that I have prepared with my own body and my own blood. Feast here knowing that these things don't disqualify you. You eat them like a glutton at my table in the face of your enemies. And then Psalm 23 ends this way. We've transported now from like shepherding language into feasting language. And what does he say at the end of the feast? What do the dinner guests of Psalm 23 who feast at Jesus' table, what do the dinner guests get up from the table singing and believing as they leave? What do those that come and take from Jesus leave the feast knowing? He says, I know that goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. You can't feast at Jesus' table that he set before you and believe that you will ever be forgotten by him. I know that goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. In other words, because Jesus gave up his rights to set you a feast, the Lord will always remember you. That what Nehemiah hoped was true, what Nehemiah pleaded to be true, oh God, remember me with goodness. We now on the other side of Jesus know that it is true. That the father that you came into the world looking for has come looking for you in the person of Jesus. And that Jesus sets you a feast. If you're not a Christian in the room, I don't know what you, what you think about Jesus. I don't know what you've heard about Jesus. I don't know what you've decided is true about Jesus. I don't, I don't, I don't know what you hate about him. I don't know what you think is so intellectually um, inferior about, about this whole deal. I don't, I don't know what you would say to Jesus if, if you were with him. But here's what I would invite you to this morning. Would you risk believing that this is the Jesus of the Bible? that this is the Jesus who sets a feast and pays for it with his own blood. If you hate Jesus, if you got questions for Jesus, if you got problems with Jesus, do you know how most of those things get healed in relationships? Usually by sharing a meal. Would you share the meal that Jesus has set before you? Would you just risk eating with him? And if you are a Christian, if you have feasted with Jesus before, please hear this, please hear this. Goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life. Not all the days that you feel loyal to Jesus, not all the days that you feel like you deserve the feast, not all the days that you're so sorry for what you've done, and certainly, certainly not all the days that you think you could help foot the bill for the meal. Goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life and they will follow you into the very places where you have looked for other faces looking for you. Goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life even in the places where you've refused to give up your rights. Goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life because Jesus gave up his rights in order to serve you. Do you know that for something to follow you, it has to be already pursuing you? It can't follow you if it's not already coming after you. Christian, would you dare to believe that because Jesus gave up his rights, that he's still coming after you? That in the presence of your enemies, he wants to set you a feast continually. That in the presence of your enemies, he would say, come and feast at my table that is paid for all that you've done. 
And would we, as we feast at that table, let our hearts be melted? Would, would, would it melt the grip we have on our rights that we might, like our Jesus, learn to give up our rights for the sake of others, believing that the love of God simply cannot let you go? Let's pray. Jesus, we cling to our rights. We get angry and we get afraid. And to give up our rights feels terrifying because we don't, we don't even know who we are apart from them. And so would we in these next few moments of song and crying out, would we, would we dare to believe that there's a feast that's been set for us to come and take from you, Jesus? Would you melt us with the rights that you gave up to serve us? Would you transform us? Would you reorient us? Would you form us and reform us? With the love that will not let us go, would we be marked as a people who feast at that table continually and then goes and does the same for the world around us, we pray in your name, amen.